everybody. Welcome back to Flying Goat Farm podcast. I'm really excited about today's um, podcast, uh, but before we get to that, here's what's happening on the farm. So um, I'm recording this in mid-June. Um, we've had some really hot weather and some really not so hot weather. We've been um, dealing with the smoke from Canada you know, red sunsets, red um, suns rising in the morning. Um, and it's just, I have to say this whole year has been just like one weird weather thing after another. But one of the good things about this weird weather is that um, our peaches are ripening earlier than normal and they are just so concentrated. I think that's because we haven't had the amount of rain that we usually have from the beginning of the year we're down like nine inches in a deficit and I think so far this month we're um, like negative two inches now so I think because of the drought the fruit that has set is you know being concentrated um, and that it's just so incredibly flavorful um, and I'm talking about the peaches now that's all we have that is um, uh, harvestable at this point. But the other thing I noticed that our pears, we have a lovely red Bartlett pear tree. And it is, the, the fruit on there is so small. We usually don't harvest that until probably August, maybe September. So I'm hoping to see the fruit go grow um, larger. But at this point, they're the size of a seckle pear, which would be... Gosh, it's kind of, they're smaller than the palm of my hand. And that's really unusual for a red Bartlett to be in that stage. So we'll see what happens as that goes along. Um, as far as the animals, um, everybody's doing great out there. Um, the grass isn't growing very quickly back um, after they're grazing it. Um, but, you know, we also don't have to mow. So <laughs> there are all these different um, silver linings behind um, this weird, strange weather that we're having in 2023. That brings me to um, today's podcast, and I'm really excited about it. Like I said, today um, I'm talking to Amy Dufoe. She is the organizer of the Southeastern New England Fiber Shed and the director of sustainability and probably so many other things for Botanical Colors. Um, she's a journalist. She's a consultant. She wears a lot of different hats. And um, I heard her say at some point, it was probably during something with Botanical Colors, maybe a Feedback Friday, maybe one of their um, wholesale meetings, that she did natural dyeing when she was traveling. And that just was like, it made me so curious about how she does that. And since we are going so thank you, Amy, for joining me today. You know, I know you probably, I first met you, kind of met you, air quotes, you know, on uh, Feedback Fridays with Botanical Colors. And in fact, in my last podcast, I mentioned how great a resource that is because, you know, there's just so many beautiful, um, inspirational artists that come and speak on that program. So anybody who wants to learn about natural dyeing, that's a really good place to start. Yeah. 
I will, I will get behind you on that, that I think I will agree to that. It's yeah. definitely been 122 presenters that have blown my mind and that I can't believe I found 122 people or a little less. Some people have come twice, but, but it's been but really, still and yeah. from all over the world, like from Brazil and France and Africa. Well, Japan, the, right. Japan. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. We've had Indonesia. We've had people from all over and we've, they've had to work with our 9 a.m. Pacific noon Eastern. So sometimes they have to set their alarm clocks and do it, but yeah. they have, but feedback Friday was just something that we had at the beginning. Even five, we were, we had been doing it for about five years as a blog post. And then when the pandemic hit, we just realized that everybody in the community just needed some place to gather online. Cause everybody was kind of, was freaking out and sad and right. lonely. And trying to make do with what they had in their homes. So we created Feedback Friday Live so that we could get everybody on there. And we started out with about 35 people, then went to 75 people, quickly to 150. And then at the height of the pandemic, we were at 700 to 900 a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so it, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot yeah. of the... I don't remember seeing that many at the lot when it's actually happening, but then everybody's watching it afterwards if they can't make it. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's well, yeah. at the very beginning, we would record it and then we would send out a dedicated newsletter saying, Hey, okay. you know, feedback Friday video recording is up or we would just, yeah, we'd put it in the newsletter. So now we do it every other week. Sometimes we put it in the newsletter, but most people just know, they just will go the, to the Feedback Friday videos page on Botanical Colors and they can watch right. them. Or they ask their friends, like lots of times, either I will ask Kirsten or she will ask me, oh, is it Feedback Friday this this Friday or next Friday? Yeah. It's usually every other Friday, yeah. but you know, in the case of like this month, we're actually going to be in, in uh, Brooklyn next week, Kathy and I. So we're, we're trying to put together a Feedback Friday field trip, I've called it. We've already had one in Western Mass at a museum with one of the textile artists that was on Feedback Friday. So we're just trying to get people to gather live yeah. this week, next Friday. And then the weekend, week after we have another person. But it's, yeah, it's pretty constant finding people that are really interesting. They know how to use Zoom. And they, you right. know. That's and that they're pretty, they're pretty good presenters. Even the people who international ones with their English is like so beautiful you know mm -hmm. we would have I would have a hard time going international and speaking to somebody else in their language but they you know they do a really good yeah. job it's interesting about Feedback Friday too because for me a lot of people have been referred to me so and then I'll go check them out and I don't care if they have 40 followers or 40,000 followers if it's really exceptional work and real or a really interesting story behind the work. I want them absolutely on Feedback Friday to tell that story. And I always tell them in our run through that, you know, what I ask them, what's the story you haven't been able to tell about what you do? Because this is the place you, you can totally do it. Free reign, go for it. Right. So we people blow us away. We've had people turn the tables on us and ask us questions, which we weren't ready for. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's cool. Yeah. And then after that, I met you through Fibershed because you are the organizer of the Southeast New England chapter of affiliate of Fibershed. Yeah. So yeah. that's pretty exciting. 
Yeah, I've been running the, well, I started out the first couple of years, uh, basically up until the pandemic. I had two other people running it with me, Sarah Kelly and, um, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I almost forgot, Karen Schwalbe, my brain is a little fried today. But we started it together and then the two of them had to go on, like um, Sarah actually moved down to DC and has been doing really beautiful and exciting work with textile exchange, sustainable ag funders. And Karen is now the executive director of the Massachusetts Farm Bureau. Wow. So I've been running it for a couple of years by myself and definitely have, because I love natural dyeing so much, I've been looking at, you know, some the projects at the beginning were around fiber farming and soil. And now I've really turned it over to natural dyeing and soil and water. That's just something I'm personally really interested in. And so I'm just, that's the way I'm going, but I still act as a switchboard operator for everybody. And so I, because I've been in the sustainable fashion world for over 15 years as a writer and PR person, communications person, I, I just know a lot of people. So I know how to, who to connect the right, you know, who to connect. Yeah. And that's a lot of what Fiber Shed being an organizer is about. It's just trying to get, you know, the makers and the producers to get together. And that's, yes, what we're doing too. Um, we started, Ch Chesapeake started, you know, with makers and our sustainable cloth. And now we're working on a dye source book that we're really excited about. Um, and about and starting a dyer's circle so that, you know, because, you know, it shouldn't just be, you know, Kirsten and I telling people how to dye stuff from local plants. It's like, because we all have information. So we're trying to bring that together into a circle. Yeah. And what's also interesting about bringing that together into a circle and doing what you do and doing what I do with our fiber sheds, it's this gathering of people and the gathering of knowledge, and then see where there's crossovers that people didn't realize that where, where there were crossovers, but also that kind of the taking in of that knowledge as it applies to color can be looked at in so many different ways. Like I was just telling you, I, I have a pan going on my stove right now with dock that dock seeds that have been grown in wastewater and uh <laughs> and in because it's been grown in wastewater i'm sure it's going to have a different color so we can look at colors as a way of yeah uh, telling so many different stories around environmental <laughs> issues and water issues and you know you were you've asked me to talk about as i travel you know some of the colors that i've like why I why I keep a color journal basically when right. I travel. I also keep a color journal when I'm home too. So I'm curious. So the, the colors are actually different because it's been grown in wastewater. Yeah, the that's nutrients true. are different, or that's interesting. So many different ways that I'm growing dye plants in wastewater, and sometimes it's like um, it's literally just filtered wastewater. So. <laughs> yeah use your yeah. imagination people use your imagination on that and and i'm at this place it's called mass tc and it's an innovative it's, it's the nation's largest or leading innovative alternative septic test center so you can legally use wastewater there to do whatever you want it's legal to do that and so people from all over the world are doing projects there and i just stumbled across them strangely i was on a podcast and 
and just wanted to understand what the place was all about. And now I'm in my second year of growing dye plants out there. And last year we just were like, let's put seeds in the ground. Yeah. Let's, let's go here. And, and they have these different test beds. Like one is wicking up wastewater. So all the nitrogen is and everything is really in the soil. It doesn't really come, come out as much as one I had in the back that was dosing the plants with with that wastewater, which is, they said black water, yikes. And then yeah. <laughs> we had hydroponic water or hydroponic nitrified wastewater. So a lot of the nitrogen, I what I'm assuming was taken out of that water. And no matter what, wastewater across the board. And now I'm using just urine to, to feed plants. It, it grows them incredibly. But what we're realizing, and I'll, you know, these, I really just came across this this week. This would be my first time talking about this out loud as part of my grant. What I've realized is that you really don't need to fertilize flowers. They, they do, they do fine on their own. We've just sort of been duped by the fertilizing world and the chemical corporations that we should use miracle grow. We should do this and that, but you really don't. But when you're farming for food, with things like uh, squash and corn and and different different plants, you need that nitrogen. You need that fertilizer. But we have to find alternative ways to use fertilizer. So now my grant is turning into not so much. Yes, we understand that wastewater grows plants incredibly, but what does it do to the soil? Because if it's harming the soil and not building these beautiful microbiomes that the plants. Right. In long term, not short term, not getting them addicted like, like these drug addicted plants. If if we can think differently about that, and we can think long term of let's build the soil up so the plants will grow really right. well, and that's that's my new focus with the grant, which was not anywhere I thought we would be going with this. Right, so that just feeds into that regenerative agriculture idea. Yeah, yeah. Start with yeah, the yeah. soil, slow color. Exactly. So I did, and I and I was trying to think. When did I first hear you talking about, you know, uh, doing dying while you were traveling? I, I I think it had to be at a fiber shed thing, you know, one of the affiliate meetings. Because I don't know that you've talked about it with Feedback Friday, but it, it's very intriguing. I've never to me. really talked about it out out loud, kind of a focused talk on it. This would be my first time. I'm so happy you wanted to know more about it because I I love doing it. I think when when the pandemic first started, I realized, and I was definitely inspired by Brees Honeycutt, who's a textile artist, and also by Anita Cazola, who's also a textile artist. They're both educators. And they had these two different projects going on where they were really looking at Brees, in Brees's case, what was underfoot? What are the plants that we don't pay attention to? Why are we, why do we think dandelions are weeds? Why, you know, when they're actually amazing pollinator plants and, and they do so much. And then Anita was looking at in her botanical reclamation project was looking at these quote unquote sad spaces mm, where, right. yeah, where you could, you have all these plants that you think it's just weeds, but it's actually goldenrod and milkweed and, um, you know, just different plants that you think of as, uh, are, as a weed. And then she did all these series of colors around them and then shifted shifted the pH a bit. She would do all, of like iron over dyes as well. 
So she would get these range of colors. So I started during the pandemic because all I had was my yard. I just started working around my yard and looking at the leaves and the bark and what's this tree and what's this plant. I just started really looking at exactly what was in my yard. What was I not seeing and started doing swatches because I botanical colors, Kathy and I were really, she was kind of all alone at botanical colors because <laughs> nobody could be there with her. Right. She would send me, she sent me, we have this wool gauze that we sell. That, it, oh, which is of, such a lovely product. Oh, I love it. It, it really yeah. is. And I, I get a yard or two of it. I mordant it immediately and some alum sulfate, let it dry, fold it, put it away. And so whenever I want, like in my yellow pot that's back there on the shelf is full of, is full of the uh, wool gauze. So I'll cut a square out and like I just did with the dock that's on the stove. And so I don't have to, it's all prepped and ready to go. It's just a matter of what color does this plant have inside it? And so I did that around my yard. And then I also, it was my father, you know, it's sort of a sad story, but not sort of, it's a very sad story, but it comes up a lot. Sorry, I tell this story. But my, during the pandemic, I hadn't been able to see my parents. I finally got to see my dad. My mom said he was, something was off. Something was really wrong. And, and he looked like he had lost weight, blah, blah, blah. Well, come to find out in September, I'd seen him in July. In September, my father was diagnosed with leukemia oh. and was a year to live. And I'm sorry. it was, had progressed so fast. He actually died three months later. And so during that time, I was doing lots of different projects with dying and the idea of dying and dying. And then right. when we had to go up to Maine, where my parents were living at the time, we had shut the whole house down and moved them here to, to Cape Cod just so he could be going to the hospital, be closer. I could help take care of him, do hospice. Right, right. With him. So my mom and I did hospice. And then when he passed in December 1st, um, 2020 we 2020 yep we ended up when we went back up to Maine to open the house which was a time capsule it was the first time because I had to spend I went every other week to help clean out the house with my mother that I started noticing things I'd never noticed before in the sort of you know like 35 years that they'd owned this place I saw all the beautiful I did see this always saw the sumac but then I saw all the St. John's wort and the goldenrod and the ferns and you know i have a they I, weren't I, planted they were they just, they're just wild just growing the elderberry tree the you know, i just started i have a my so i use the plant plant app plant net app okay and so oh, that's one of my questions <laughs> yeah out in the woods like what is that what is that oh my god and look at the bark on that and so i started doing these test swatches while you know even while you know just just started doing these test swatches. I'm so sorry. My oven is about to, my timer is about to beep and I'm going to turn it off because that's, that's what happens when you're doing. <laughs> that's, that's what real life is, right? <laughs> Six seconds left. Oh, that's a pretty color in the pot. Okay. Oh, good. Um, so anyways, I started doing swatches around there and then realized that it's actually a beautiful way to journal is to have these swatches the or, or fabric that you could take with you and then wherever you go you can you know if you're 
not traveling with your own car and you have to go by plane, you go to Goodwill and you get okay. a pot, a stainless steel little pot <laughs> and you or in a steamer and a little stainless steel bowl. And maybe you've walked out with $4, you've paid for that. And then that becomes what I'm using. I'm simmering things on the stove in my Airbnb and just, and looking at different colors that are with, that are all around me. And then it becomes my color journal. And I can say that from where it was, the type of plant, what were the indigenous uses for it? And what did I learn about it? Sometimes there's a poem I write about it too. So it's, cool. it's, a, it's really a very mean. personal journal, but it's it's a nice way to, to journal as a natural dyer. Yeah, so you use that net, the plant net app. I think I have something called Snap It, but I'll check out that other one too. Um, have you have you done any anything internationally? Not yet, not yet. No, I've only just I've just done my swatches in the U.S. But I look forward to. I was just in Hawaii. We had a workshop in Hawaii. Right with Sasha Dorr and we did so many exciting colors there that even some colors she'd never even tried, which is why oh, I love it. She's so experimental. So I've got this incredible range of colors of Hawaii now. That's in my swatch book. That's so beautiful. beautiful. That's yeah. neat. Okay. So you just, so you, you're not using cream of tartar. You're just using alum sulfate on there. Some more. That, I'm just, I'm going super simple. Yep. I'm just using alum sulfate on the wool. And I just like, I, I have so much mordant here, but I just, yeah, just, I think we all do. Right. I have. Yeah. I mean, you just have to just kinds. get ahead of it. That's the good part about being a dyer. Everybody's like, Oh, it's so much work. You have to first scour and then you have to mordant and then there's the dye itself. And, but no, if you break it up into, into batches where you're doing the scouring done, I like right. to have a garment too. So I have a garment rack and I'll put all my stuff. Okay. That's all been scoured. Next step is mordant. And then I have a day where I'm just mordanting and probably doing a little dyeing on the side too, but mordanting. And then I let yeah. it all dry. So I have a whole garment rack downstairs of a whole bunch of things that are white. So different Re fabrics. They're getting ready. They're getting yeah. ready. They don't know what's, they don't know what's going to hit them, but something will be on them. It's very hard to keep things white in this house. <laughs> to keep and it's in a separate spot i know what mm -hmm. so when i was when i'm in the groove of doing natural dyeing because i don't just do the natural dyeing part is that i will scour and mord in i've been using the triformate which i love because i can just leave it overnight um mm -hmm. and then yeah i have it all it all is set up and just you know one day in the morning you know i'm uh scouring mordant the next morning i you know, wring it out, rinse it out and put it in a pot. And at this end, that mm -hmm. same day, I do, you know, some more that's uh, scoured and mordanted. So it's like, it's like a constant um, practice. Yeah. And I was well, really look, looking at all the colors behind you yeah. right now. <laughs> it's like, yeah. All of these right here, moving. those are all natural dyed. All there. So beautiful. Yeah. I got a really nice range of colors. So that was really cool. Um, yeah. so this is what, so we are going on a cruise. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to have like a hot plate, but I was thinking that, um, I can kind of make a tea, right. I can get hot water and put it in a baggie, right. And then let them kind of steep until, and, 
it can sit in there for a while until we have to get off the boat. Maybe you have really good windows and you can do solar dyeing. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Go, go ask somebody, anybody, you go to the kitchen and just say, do you have an, a glass jar I could have? Yeah, that's they'll true. Right. Like, like you're crazy. And they'll say, sure. Here's a glass jar with a lid. <laughs> do you have a couple? Then, could I have like three? <laughs> and then suddenly you're, you're, room on the cruise ship looks so cool because you're solar dying in your little windowsill but right we have i think we we don't have a big balcony I, we didn't we didn't spring for that but we have a little kind of balcony that they could just kind of all sit there and Wait everybody can say what is she doing that's really weird yeah Sorry. do you guys have a microwave in, the, in your room i don't think so no uh well, the but, other part, but I can get hot water at, you know, just, I can get hot water anywhere there, you know, just go in. I can, I, so, you know, I could take my little glass jar. Cause you can microwave color in too. You can steam, yeah, it, right. steam it in. And, but also there's also uh, electric teapots. Yes. <laughs> and I was just thinking know, about. Yeah, even I love like, that, like looking at you and your eye, you're like, hmm. Yeah, I'm like, hmm. What because I was thinking instead of um like even getting a little um thermos thing so it would keep hot for a while. That's a great idea. That would be a good idea. And that wouldn't be something that would, you know, like break in transit, right? Right. You could, I mean, there's those kind of of course, you want to use glass more than plastic, but there's definitely those plastic French presses. You could also just have oh. a French press, put it in there and it could be your lid too. Just got to get creative. Yeah, now, now I have to go shopping. Darn it. <laughs> and I think, you know, I, I was, I, I probably am going to buy some wool gauze to do it. Um, and I, but I also have little mini skeins of my Cormo fingering that have already been oh, yeah. warranted. So perfect. And these you know, weightless, they're 50, 50 yards. So, you know, I, you could make at the end, you could make, you know, a neat hat or a cowl or something. Um, yeah, that's cool. Thinking about it like that. I, I keep thinking about the swatches. What could I do with them? Like botanical in the botanical reclamation project, Anita actually sewed the different colors together. I remember seeing that. Yeah. yeah. And it, so it was this almost looked like that kind of Boro style squares sewn together. And it was sort of like this mark, like you think this is a sad place, but these are the colors of the place. Exactly. And and that was incredible. Flag waving. Yeah. I know that was really a beautiful thing, but yeah, traveling. If you're, if you've got the natural dye bug, you definitely get creative right way creative i mean that's one of the first things i do it's kind of sad but funny at the same time where is there a goodwill salvation army antique <laughs> shop junk shop where am i going to find that pot because that's the is thing you, okay so you're not packing it with you you're going like if when you get to a place and then you're looking for it no i i leave it there I, I mean, I always leave it there or I'll bring it back to the Goodwill or. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. If it's Airbnb. I just sort of slip it into the pans, you know, like kind of pushed in the back. 
Yeah. People are probably wondering, how the heck did we get this pan and lid? This is nice. Where, where did it come from? Yeah. yeah that's funny. A metal slotted spoon. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know we had this, but, you know, of course, you want to have your your pans be separate from from your from your dying but i don't know that anything that i've died would kill you since you know when i'm on the road a lot of it is like it, it is you could put in a salad but there are definitely some things like when i was in new mexico i sent you a picture of all the different colors we got there and there was like ponderosa pine and navajo tea salt bush there were some other plants I can't remember, but we were, you, these, these people that I rented from had 10 acres and I went up to them and I said, so I do this thing called natural dying and not dying. Like I'm not going to, you know, Yeah. <laughs> but so I, I do this thing where I just kind of explore color. Would you, would you mind if I took anything from your property? And I said, this is like the most strangest thing anybody has ever asked us, but yeah, we can't wait to see what colors you get. So I ended up at the end of the day after hiking and being out, we'd go, it was like two miles down a dirt road in the middle of nowhere back to this place. And I was so excited because I would put things in my pocket and then, right. then forage their yard. And, and I had a jar too, I was doing solar dyeing. And so they were ex so excited at the end of the day, they'd come with their two dogs and come see the colors. What, what did I find? And they, it was really interesting too. They had prickly pear cactus all over the oh, place. Neat. So, were there any cochineal bugs on them? I did find cochineal bugs on the nopal cactus that they had. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, they had two different types of cactus. But one, it was a really strange cactus. It wasn't nopal cactus, but it almost had fused. It was some hybrid plant. Same with the salt. It's like they just sort of keep evolving the salt bush such an interesting invasive plant that i think it had four different plants growing within it oh wow yeah it just keeps morphing and that was the most exciting color of the entire trip because that was that shocking completely shocking yellow because as you know you'll get lots of yellows yes. from natural dyes <laughs> yes. most common color but this was really outstanding this color it was almost like an uh, undertones of orange Oh, that's kind of neat. Shocking. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was really cool. Kind of like, I think the color that's in the pan right now from white, you know, wastewater seeds. Yeah. And I would think if you're using that, that app, it's going to tell you if it's, um, if it's a poisonous plant. I always look at that. I always go to, actually you can click over like Wikipedia or I think, you know, oh, there's okay. lots of things you can check out, but so I'll go to Wikipedia and just see what its history is, its uses. It almost is always related to indigenous, some indigenous use for stomach aches or astringents or something, yeah, but some kind of healing. It's always These things with the plantain. Yeah, it can be <laughs> internal or externally used. So I, yeah, I've never used anything that's just pure poison. I remember one time I took a picture of something and put it, I said, on Instagram and stories, has anybody, does, has anybody ever used this? And everybody was like, eh, 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 do not <laughs> use that horrible, horrible plant. It's completely um, poisonous. The smell in the air is poisonous. Oh, like, wow. You know, yeah. But I couldn't, it was showing me that it was eggplant. 
And I knew it was an eggplant. It was growing like a weed and it had really fierce thorns on it. It looked like something out of Maleficent, you know, would have been yes. growing. Yeah, something that would be growing down in Hades or the yeah, like in the deep in the bowels of hell. Yeah, like yeah. this plant never to be touched again. No, I, I got it. I won't ever look, even look at it again. <laughs> where where was that that you found that? At the wastewater place. Okay. So that's so that's another thing I've been doing. So at the Mass TC, I've been taking different plants that grow around the perimeter because. Because it's funny, the people who work there say, um, we were ripping up mugwort one day and like, we've got so much of this mugwort. Do you, does it, have you ever tried this stuff out? I'm like, nope, but I'll try it. And then I realized it's this incredible astringent. It's used in, it's really popular in Korean makeup and, and body care. Oh. Yeah. And I had these bumps on my elbow one night after I had just read about it and it said, as an astringent. So after I had used it for color, totally put my whole elbow in it and totally dried out everything on my elbow for the, by the next day. So I was wow. Like, okay. And it has such a great smell to it, but yeah, it's, it's invasive. It's all over the place at the wastewater place. But what I'm really interested in is, or are, are the plants that are growing in the actual wastewater. And what I'm finding is there's metals i mean there's literally there's they test for viruses there and different pathogens but there's pharmaceuticals there's right. drugs which drugs pharmaceuticals there's um there could be because it's on an air force base it could be jet engine fluid that's coming through there could oh, be oh wow you know you never know what you're what you're gonna because see because it's getting runoff from from the like the it's runways or whatever the air force air force base and the jail that's on on the base so everything is coming there and then it's a little mini treatment facility is right next door to us so after it comes through us it's going right to the treatment facility to be to be treated okay but in the meantime there's test beds everywhere that's dosing beds wicking beds hydroponic beds different types of filtration systems, everything's lined with plastic so it cannot go into the soil, but all the soil that's that's in that in those plastic beds right is just yeah. completely yeah. filled with wastewater so but yeah there's even a composting toilet company that's some I think from Israel maybe and they're capturing the methane from the wastewater and have a stove hooked up so it's just sort of Charlie wow. and the Chocolate Factory, and yeah. that is probably a reference I should never make again. Oh my God! When you talk about a wastewater plant, that's awful. But but yeah, it's it's a very it's a very interesting place, and so I'm learning a lot about water science and soil science while there, which is a dramatic shift from my background as a journalist who's been writing about sustainable fashion and environmental issues as well as human rights. That's been my, my jam for my whole career, but also, you know, doing PR communications um, and just different uh, co-owning a or co-running a boutique working for designers and repping at market so that when I would go to market and sell to buyers, I would, know that lingo as well so the buying right. the sell but right. for this part 
like when I would when I was the communications director for the Brooklyn Fashion and Design Accelerator um, for six years, when we would have these events and we would talk about farmers, we would never have a farmer at the table. Would never be all the people, the millennials we were talking about. They were they weren't there either. Uh, the the weavers. It's hard to bring them in. It's pro. It's they. They are in their own space and I don't know if it's that they don't feel comfortable crossing over or it just isn't in their um, purview that they would do that because, yeah, we have a hard time getting producers to come and talk to us about anything. So, yeah, yeah well, I yeah, can understand like it. Farms to take care of. So to ask somebody, yeah. a farmer to come to New York City for a weekend. I was last year, about a year ago last year, I was I was on a, there was a UN a uh, little UN conference and I was there for fiber shed for sustain. Uh, well, I'm sorry, my Southeastern New England fiber shed, mm -hmm. but talking about regenerative soil and regenerative practices. Laura Sansone was there too from New York textile lab, but it was the first time we'd actually had two farmers in the room, Maida and John, my friend Maida and Johnny who are live in New Mexico. And they had, obviously had somebody taking care of all the animals right right but yeah, yeah. Like, i said i know that because we, we can't go anywhere without having farm sitters it's yeah it's it's something yeah you have to make really make a plan for it and and trust that you know nothing bad's going to happen <laughs> yeah. while you're not there yeah hopefully i mean i'm sure there's lots of things that could happen i just get worried through the weekend will the aphids take over my dye plants <laughs> I saw I saw the pictures of your aphids. <laughs> yes, I, I went online and said, like, what is what can you do to take care of aphids that is not poison? So I look like a tablespoon of Dr. Bronner's to 16 ounces of water. Okay. So that's what I did. And I sprayed them on Friday and then came back today and they were all, almost they kind of were. I have waste wool that I'm using. Uh -huh. So waste wool around the plant. So the waste wool was just covered in dead aphids. And then wow. I said, God, I wish ladybugs would come because then we could just have a little ladybug party over here. And exactly. And then all of a sudden I'm about to leave packing up and I look and there was a little ladybug who had just flown in. And I went, That's yeah. cool. So the cool. other thing that I've used for aphids on my um, roses is banana peels. Oh, but they don't like the smell of banana peels or something. So if around you the put the, yeah, around the base of oh. your plant and it keeps the aphids off That's and cool. it's, and it fertilizes, right? Cause it's, it's, you know, decomposing right into the, the sugars. Yeah. So that's an idea too. Yeah. There's so many different things we can do besides putting poison on our soil and killing our soil. We think again, these poisons that we put on our on our soils are growing plants, but at the cost of what for right. long term? What are, long what term. are we doing? You really have to keep farmers on the land and really help them to understand again long term, not short term harvests and these the the short term effects have long term impacts on not just us. I actually went last night to a climate change talk, and Bill McKibben was talking. Um, there was, um, oh my gosh, I, I honestly just found out about it last night, but she's the climate change 
like secretary or she lead for Massachusetts. Oh my oh. gosh. Can't believe I'm forgetting her name. She was so wonderful. Oh, embarrassed. But she was saying, we have to think about how everything that we do impacts other people. So you have, of course, the pandemic. We saw that full throttle. Like we get right, it. Right. It doesn't just happen in another country. What happens in one place affects all of us. But so here on Cape Cod, we've been dealing with the all the smoke that's been coming down from Canada. Yeah, we got it too. Yeah. Yeah. And so bad. And it, today is actually really good. But this woman, again, my apologies, wonderful person who spoke last night. She was saying that she must have named off 20 different animals and insects and trees and all the things that had been burning. And so as we get this air, this smoke that's coming to us, we breathe in ancient trees. We breathe oh, in right. the, we breathe in the the chipmunk, the rabbit, the caterpillar, the butterfly, the, you know, the, these she just kind of went on this list. Oh wow, and that's very poetic. Inhalation of a landscape. So these taking in of landscapes. And it was interesting because we we had Heidi Gustafson on this past Friday talking right. about Book of Earth. And that was one of the things that jumped out from her book to me was we inhale these whatever's in the air, these ochres and these pigments that have been around since since the earth became earth. And so we are the landscape. We are the place. And I thought that was fascinating that two people in one week basically said the same thing, but it's from, from two different worlds too. Yeah. You know, completely the artistic different world. world and the policy world. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Which is heartening that we can think about people are talking at this, starting to talk maybe the same language, but some a little bit more formal than, than others. But, you know, it was interesting. I was up on, um, Lake Damariscotta in Maine about a month and a half ago. And it was so wonderful. We got this place. It was right on the water. And there were two Adirondack chairs right by the edge of the water. And so I wake up really early, made coffee, went down, wrapped up in a blanket with my coffee, left my phone behind and just listened to the sounds all around me. And suddenly there's a loon, a loon that pops Ooh. up, makes their awesome loon sounds. And keeps going. And then all of a sudden there was this little boat, you know, going by. And I was looking at, he was, he was kind of out towards the middle, but I was watching the his the ripple effects, right? The ripples from his little putt 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 boat right. coming towards me in that lake. And the lake was like like glass. So I watched it come at me. And then when it hit the shore, it bounced back out. And oh wow. Hit. Yeah. It was really very interesting to think about it. These there's these ripple effects, right? We we have these ripple effects we make as as humans in many different ways, good and bad. But if you think about, it's all how you kind of bounce it back off of you. Like I've done this, but this is how I'm going to make it better. I've made this choice, and this is how I'm going to make that that choice that I've made better in some way. Right. So I can educate people. I feel like with our fiber sheds, we've that is sort of how That's we the goal. Right? That is our goal. Yeah. And a lot of us, of course, are doing this as part of because we just believe in it and we want to educate. And 
and sure it becomes other things too, where maybe it feeds into our work, but I just find it, it's, it's a, an education without having to go back to school, learning about because what there I is. So there's so much to it, you know, with the, the wastewater and the natural dyeing and how, how to produce, you know, wool that's good enough to be put into clothing that, that Laura's team of designers are making. And, you know, all those things are interconnected and, yeah. you know, trying to bring all of the, those pieces together to make, you know, a, a sustainable kind of a textile system that we haven't had for so right. long. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, a lot of our affiliate meetings, I, I always say something about this idea of like smashing everything we've known because everything we've known hasn't seemed to work. Right. We've kind of uh, bastardized the fashion and textile industry. So what does the future look like in terms of, of doing things good for people and planet as it involves textiles and farming? Right. And, making and how can we do our little part? Because it may not, you know, not everybody can go out and buy, you know, organic cotton, naturally dyed clothing, but there are things, smaller things that you can do to make it a better place, using it longer, not washing it as much, you know, all of those things that can, can be a little part of the ripple. And if we get enough little parts, we can make a wave. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. And bring it back. Shoot yes. it back up to people. Like now you learn. Exactly. Yeah. That's cool. Would you like, would you like to tell us about your necklace? Cause it's such a neat story. Oh yes. Well, so these, these, this is my t-shirt necklace and I've got lots of different colors of these necklaces. This, I, like I was saying, I think it was, it started out marigold and then I, once it started, it kind of faded out a little bit. I didn't more it, but then I ended up putting it in onions. And so when it fades out, I'll put it in something else and just, it'll become its own color. There'll never be another necklace like this, but right. when we talk about place-based, so kind of going back to my father dying when, when he, he used to always have these V-neck white t-shirts. So when he died, my mom said, do you want your dad's t-shirts? And they're really worn in and soft. And I right, said, right. Oh, what am I going to do with these? Like, I'm sure, I mean, how many V-neck t-shirts can I wear? <laughs> And then um, Breeze Honeycutt had given me this really beautiful t-shirt necklace that she dyed with indigo. And I had asked her about it, you know, and she said, there's, there's, it's actually from Natalie Channon from Alabama Channon. Natalie has a class that might still be on creative bug. I think that's the okay. Name and it's how to make a t-shirt necklace, which I feel like we started talking about these more and more and it used to be open. And now it's, now you have to pay for the class to learn how to make it. But all you do is, um, but so for me, I, and it was a part of moving through grief with yes. my mother and myself. We took those t-shirts, I scoured and mordanted them. And then we laid them out on this table in front of me. And we started cutting my dad's t-shirts into strips and they still sort of smelled like him too. Yeah. And it was this real processing of, of grief for us. And then it was, you know, this way that I could keep my father with me in a way that wasn't that was everybody wants to know about this necklace but or the these necklaces they love them but for me it's just a very pretty way or beautiful way to keep my father with me and then right. tie my natural dye world in there so to dyeing 
dying and dying. <laughs> but it's also it's something that you can that you can wear that is just your special thing, you know, that yeah, it's that's yeah. beautiful. But in what was interesting or, or sort of tragic comedy, it's I mean, let me say first that it's not a comedy at all. The fact that my father-in-law died six weeks after my father. Oh no. Um, when we went there, my mother-in-law said, do you want Jim's white t-shirts? And I went, oh my God. So, oh yeah, of course I'll take Jim's white t-shirts. So I was able to um, make t-shirt necklaces out of, out of those shirts as well. So I've actually completely thought about doing something around, around this with people to help them move through grief, because there's really not a lot of ways for adults, if you Google anything with, about adults moving through grief, it's you're going to see more about children's things that you that help mm -hmm. you get grief, like sand designs and everything's toxic too. So, I think it's a really interesting way to think about flowers, the flowers that are there when you're oh right you're yeah classes and things you can do with with eco printing and bundle dyeing and and using place based color to create necklaces out of somebody's formerly their garment right so it's um again it ties in again with that place-based color when i travel it's it's the same kind of thing it's place-based color it's color as memory color to help move you through grief to help you move through place that's what i love about natural dyes because wherever you wherever you go there is something new there are different colors there and and it makes, if, if you love natural dyeing, you can't help yourself when you see that flower or that plant. You want to know right. more about it. But it also, um, you know, knowing it, again, knowing about those plants and the history of those plants also helps you better understand the history of your place. So you have history of place, the color of the place, and it's this really beautiful token that you can take with you and then and create journals right. with it. And, and it's it becomes a tangible fun. memory too. Yeah. Yeah. A tangible memory you can flip back to. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a really great um, discussion. Well, thanks for having me. And nobody ever asked me to talk about this stuff, but I, this is the things I love talking about the most when I'm just talking with friends because it's, it's simple too, right? It's not, I don't have to be an expert dyer. Right. I don't have to know a million different types of shibori or I can't, I don't have to be an indigo expert. I don't have to be do a production dyeing and have consistent color. I don't have to do any of that. I'm just really looking to see what color a plant has within it. And then I look at the history of it and, and right. go from there. But it's, it's a and really make nice a memory plant. of it. Keep it as, as yep. a memory for that, that time and that place. Yes. Perfect. Yep. So thanks for letting me talk about it. Thank you. You really loved that conversation. I know I got a lot out of it. Um, it wasn't totally all about um, dying while traveling, but it was a very freewheeling conversation with a really fascinating person. So I'm glad that you hung in there and were listening with it uh, to it with me. Um, today, the dye highlight is goldenrod, and I thought that this was perfect because this is um, a, a plant that you would be foraging. Um, it's considered a weed and it grows along the edges of things. And it would probably be one of those plants that Amy was talking about in the sad areas in those 
um, abandoned uh, lots that you see. It's on the edges of roads, on the edges of pastures. Um, it's it's a beautiful plant, um, but it is considered kind of a noxious weed. Um, you can forage it when the flowers are in full bloom. It's usually um, the last part of summer, like August around here, that we find that. Just keep your eyes peeled um, for the beautiful gold color along the edges of places. Um, you have to use it right away or you have to freeze it. Um, I found this out from experience. I left, I used some of it and then I came back the next day and it had all like gone into like seed pods or like the heads of dandelions or something like that. It was like totally gone. So try to use it the same day that you are, um, that you are foraging for it or freeze it. Um, you can cut only the flower spikes to make your dye stock from it. You can forage only those parts and leave the rest of the plant. Um, and it does require um, some mordant for the best color. So using some um, alum is really good for that. Um, it shifts into beautiful golds. Uh, it sh shifts from the beautiful golds to greens by dipping the yarn or the fiber or the fabric, whatever you're dyeing, into iron water. Um, and so most of the time people say iron saddens the dye. Well, yes, um, it could be called that, but it also just makes it a beautiful um, green color without having to, you know, make up an indigo that. So that's um, just a use for iron. Your iron water can be made with powdered ferrous sulfate, um, which is the easy way to do it. Or you can take rusty things, rusty nails, um, put them in a jar of water and keep them around and get, let the water, you know, get more and more iron in it. Every once in a while, when you walk by, shake up the, the jar and then you have a really nice um, jar of iron water that you can use to shift your colors. The, um, I can move this. The yarn highlight this time is our cacao. It is a two-ply mohair yarn and it's made from the fleeces of our brown angora goats. It really has a lovely hand. Um, it is somewhere between um, like a light sport weight or sport weight. Um, it is soft to the touch, but as we all know, mohair can be irritating. Um, it does some, you know, some, and even in the picture, you can kind of see there are some hairs that are kind of sticking out. Um, so it's best to plan to use this for something where you're going to be wearing something under it, like make a beautiful sweater, um, and then you're going to wear that sweater with a t-shirt underneath it or um, a turtleneck or something like that. Um, something with you know, long sleeves so that, you know, you're not having the mohair right next to your skin. But it's a beautiful, it's uh, not, it's, it's a little bit darker than oatmeal. Um, it's a beautiful, warm, tan color. And it is a great background for any of those yoked sweaters um, anything that has you want to do color work on in the yoke part, on the sleeves. Um, yeah, it's a really great yarn for that. Each skein has about um, 200 yards in it. And um, it's great, a great, great farm yarn that is um, a fiber shed project, product.
So until next time, think about t uh, looking for your plants when you're traveling this summer. I know I will be. And happy making.